Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and I finally have a co-host again. Uh, my co-host today is Kelly Van Beek in Wisconsin. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Ashley. Actually, you're not in Wisconsin today, are you? I'm not in Wisconsin today. I'm in the beautiful state of Washington. Um, I'm in Spokane at the Wildlife Society Conference. So. Oh, so cool. And thank you for taking an hour out of the conference to come do this. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Yeah, so Kelly is, I, I asked her before we started recording, I was like, Kelly, you're kind of a grousy person, right? <laughs> grousy. Um, and, grousy is as grousy does, yeah. She, she confirmed, yep. So, and that's fitting because today our guest is Ashley Peters, who is the Director of Communications and Marketing at the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. Hey, Ashley. Hello, Ashley and Kelly. It's great to be here. And did I get your title right? Yes, correct. Okay. Uh, Director of Communications and Marketing, and I've been at the organization uh, for a couple of years now. Awesome. Just to start us off, it's kind of fun. Um, can you tell us about what's in your freezer, Ashley? I can. Uh, it's nothing particularly exciting. <laughs> I uh, I got a farm box, like a community-supported agriculture um, uh, share this year, and uh, so I have a lot of vegetables in my freezer right now. <laughs> nice. Um, nice. Yeah. And it actually goes really great with any of the wild game that I do get. Um, you get a chance to kind of dig in and see what all the different um, types of foods can go with the wild game that you prepare. I'm not going to lie, though, when it comes to grouse hunting, uh, a lot of my grouse goes pretty quick and I try to eat it as soon as I can. So I don't I actually don't have any grouse in the freezer at the moment because I have eaten it all. <laughs> well, let's have a contest here. Kelly, how many grouse do you have in your freezer? <laughs> oh, I think I do have one from last year, but I I have not harvested any rough grouse this year. And I guess I do have a couple woodcock in the freezer still at home that I didn't eat before I came out to Spokane. So, but uh, I I'm with Ashley. Like the grass grows pretty fast. Like most of it never sees the freezer to begin with. It's usually <laughs> gone bit before you think about putting it in there. Well, I guess I'm the winner, but not by my own merit. We have two rough grouse in the freezer right now. Um, thanks to my husband. He shot both of them. Um, but I've heard right. something that strikes me when you're talking about um, the vegetables and cooking with wild game. I don't know if either of you follow Hank Shaw, um, but he so yeah. he talks a lot about um, accompanying wild game with things from where it lives. Um, and so I think my husband looked it up. He said there's like with rough grouse, some like high bush cranberry sauce and, um, mm -hmm. some other Definitely. really cool stuff. I'm like, oh man, we should have picked some of those. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's cool. And I was also curious about, uh, with the farm box, did you like preserve all the vegetables they sent you or do they send them to you ready to be living in the freezer? No, I process them all. So it all comes, I mean, it's still got dirt on it and everything, right? Nice. So it's fresh from the farm. It's, you got to clean everything and, you know, dice up what you want. And, um, but I just, I put so much of it into the freezer because there's, you know, I think about something like leeks, which I don't, I don't know why, but I just don't typically buy them from the grocery store much. They just don't make it into my cart. 
But when I order a farm box like that, I get all these vegetables that I just don't typically think about or typically use. And so um, usually there's a big bundle of them and it's more than I can eat. And so in addition to what I've got in my freezer, I also was um, giving it to friends and on weeks when I couldn't make it to pick up the box, I was like, hey, do you want my farm box? So um, it's just a great way also to learn more about farmers in your community. I live in St. Paul, I live downtown. Um, so I don't have space to have like a garden. Um, and so having something like that allows me to still get fresh veggies on a regular basis, pushes <laughs> my skills in terms of cooking and thinking about how to use food. Um, and then also I get to learn about some of the farms in the area that are contributing to those farm boxes. That's really cool. I love that. <clears throat> this last year is the first year I had a garden that was successful by any metric and it was a little bit life-changing it was like the center of my world for a while (laughs) oh it's so great when you have a garden that's producing and something that you can incorporate on a regular basis even if it's just herbs even if Mm -hmm. it's just stuff like cilantro or some sage you know basil stuff like that I mean even that little bit can really take something to the next level yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't, I, last year, I thought that this year I would take advantage of collecting white oak acorns and trying to turn them into flower. I have not done that yet. I'm curious. Oh, wow. Have you guys? That's intense. <laughs> there's, there's a lazy person method that I was interested in where you just put them in a jar of water in the fridge, shake them around every day for like seven days, and then you just dry them and grind them up. So I haven't wow. done it yet, but. Uh, Interesting. Huh. It just got me yeah. thinking about like, you know, a big part of hunting, I think, is a connection to food and place. And that's how I feel like right. all this is related. Yeah, I agree. I definitely, well, like I said, when I think about the vegetables I've got, I also think about how they can potentially go with the different wild game that I might be bringing home or that I might be um, going over to someone else's place to make. But yeah, it all it all comes back to how can I think about the outdoors and conservation on a daily basis? Um, and there are lots of different ways you can do that, including hunting, um, you know, something like foraging. A lot of friends that I have, a lot of folks that I interact with incorporate a lot of foraging. Um, you mentioned Hank Shaw, and he talks a ton about that, right? Like the, the different foods that can go with the wild game meat that you're collecting. And even in off seasons, you know, going out and finding mushrooms or um, other, you know, some plants that you could put with certain meals. So it's, it's just really great <laughs> to think about how these flavors um, can combine with a passion for conservation. And uh, you really feel rewarded with the meals that you eat with that kind of a mindset, I think. Yeah, I agree. And evidently, everything growing in my garden goes really well with venison, according to the deer that's currently plaguing me. (laughs) After dark, after dark, of course. Uh, Are you getting into winter yet? I don't know. It was like 70 today. I mean, it's it's, yeah, almost mid-November and it's kind of crazy, but yeah, that is crazy. Anyway, um, okay, so you must we, not have had you must not have had a killing frost, Ashley. If you're still pulling stuff from the garden in Tennessee. You're in Tennessee, you know, right? Yeah, and we did we did have a few, but I'm trying to flex some muscles here around like 
really squeezing the most out of what's called a fall garden, apparently, which growing up in Minnesota was not a real thing, Um, (laughs) but here maybe could be. So I've got uh, lettuces growing right now, spinach, um, turnips. There's like a few vestigial carrots that I haven't pulled yet. Um, And I have the biggest thing that the deer has been getting into, and I say the deer, I haven't caught it on the trail camera yet, um, is my blackberry bushes that I planted. And it's like, does this matter? I don't know, because it's not the growing season, and I'm supposed to cut them all back (laughs) in early spring anyway, so I'm just kind of letting it happen. But Yeah, I'm just doing the work for you. Yeah, maybe so. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Okay, that was fun. Uh, Ashley, we know a little bit about your professional affiliation, your job, and obviously that you're a fan of food. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, definitely. So online, folks can find me as the grouse lady on a lot of different social media platforms. And I went with that name in part because uh, things like Forest Lady (laughs) were already taken. Um, And also, it's just really easy to remember uh, Grouse Lady and that I work for the Rough Grouse Society. Um, So just trying to make it as easy as possible for folks to connect. And um, so I have a career in conservation and communications. And so I've spent the last 15 years either on the ground doing conservation work or working with the folks who do that on the ground work to communicate out to a broader audience about what's happening and why it matters and the bigger issues that this all ties into. Um, And so one of the things we work with um, at the Rough Grouse Society are the different agencies, landowners, uh, the different folks who manage forests to think about how do we make sure that the future of those forests is guaranteed for the wildlife that need them. Um, And also so that we as folks who recreate on the landscape or want to enjoy uh, wildlife in the woods um, can go participate in that. So we think a lot about the future of conservation and how to make that as sustainable as possible. Very cool. And we appreciate your efforts, clearly. Um, Those of us that like to hunt grouse and those birds and just be in those places. Uh, one of the things I know you've been involved with lately, um, have been a number of learn to hunt grouse events. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how those have been going? Sure. Yeah. So every fall, uh, we do a handful of these events. I would say, um, we don't have probably like the broad scale, um, what people call R3 events, recruitment, retention, and reactivation of hunters events. Um, But we have a handful of them and we coordinate with other groups to host those because obviously when it comes to hunting, uh, we always want to be welcoming folks into that space. And so um, I've been at a few different events between Minnesota and Wisconsin, all the way out to Montana. And there are a lot of really fun things about those learn to hunt events Um, One of the, some context for that, one of the things that always stands out to me is the more that I go to those, (laughs) the more that I feel comfortable in this hunting space. Um, I didn't start hunting until 2016. And so even though I've been in this space and I work for an organization that's made up of a lot of our members are mostly hunters, I am still kind of acquiring my identity as a hunter and who I am. And so a few things that stand out to me about these events are 
food and dogs are always such a great entry point for anybody coming into the hunting space. Whether they grew up with hunting or they're new to it, talking about food and how you prepare that game and how you consume it, um, that's always a big topic of conversation as we've discussed already today. <laughs> um, but also dogs, um, because with grouse hunting, um, at least half of the folks who grouse hunt do so with dogs. A lot of folks will get a German short hair pointer or they'll get an English setter and um, really start getting into dog training and pursuing game. And so folks just really love to dig into you know, how to be in the woods with the dogs, watching the dogs work, um, the training that goes along with that. And I think all of us can relate to a dog just making your day that much better. <laughs> you might be having a really down day, but seeing a dog get really excited about something is very contagious. So um, those, those are a couple things that really stand out. Um, but in addition to that, I would also say Watching folks learn how to dress the birds is always really fun because that's a place where you can see people to start making the connection between the plants in forests um, and the game that they're consuming. And so, for example, when you're dressing a grouse, um, and anyone who's dressed a bird understands this or understands the concept, which is um, they have a crop, which is kind of like... You know how chipmunks will <laughs> store acorn, <laughs> acorns temporarily in their in their mouth. Um, it's kind of like that, but it's a pouch on the front of their throat, and then um, it kind of just sits there for a little bit. And when you harvest a bird, if you open that crop, you can see what that bird's been eating, and it hasn't been processed at all yet. It's just kind of sitting there. And so when you start taking things out, you know. Um, a lot of people are interested to see things like catkins or strawberry leaves or clover um, and make that connection for like, oh, that's what this grouse is eating. And then a lot of times you might have surprising things like we found mushrooms in grouse crops and corn. Somebody recently posted one of <laughs> grouse with a bunch of corn in its crop. Um, rose hips, you know. Um, when you harvest something like spruce grouse, which shares some similar habitat to rough grouse, um, they'll just have a pile of needles in that crop. And it's really fun to look through that and make that connection to the landscape and start identifying the different things that this bird is looking for in the woods. And then talking about the conservation of those resources and managing forests with a mindset towards how can we provide a bounty of food for all the different types of wildlife that are in the woods, including um, birds like grouse? So um, those are a few any Any comments on that stuff? I could talk about this seriously all day. Um, <laughs> there are so many takeaways from these Learn to Hunt events um, that I just really enjoy. I have a few things. I want to hear what Kelly has to say, but first, one thing that struck me is I swear whales would eat corn if it was available to them. Like <laughs> Everything loves corn. And it's so weird because I was just up in the Northwoods on a grouse hunt and that's not a landscape conducive to corn production. So that's just funny to me. Kelly, did you, <laughs> did you have anything to talk about? I love the crop conversation. Like it's always <laughs> striking to me that people, um, people are hunting birds and they're processing birds and they don't look. I'm like, what? Well, did you look at the crop and they're like, what's a crop? And um, I, 
yes, I agree with Ashley that it's so, there's such a connection to be had there and an understanding then of habitat by looking at what the bird's eating and how that changes across the season and changes depending on where you're hunting and all of the things that can be learned by looking at a bird's crop. And I do it with, I mean, I do it with turkeys, I do it with grouse, um, any, any, any of those birds that are foraging on all different kinds of things. People forget like that they're eating so much plant material, right? Like they're really surprised mm-hmm. by that. Um, and so that's really fun to point out and the diversity of plant material often that they're eating. And again, depending on the season and then yes, of course the dog connection um, has, is brings so many people into the outdoors for, you know, whether they want to be hunters or not, but watching a dog work, doing it, doing what it was bred to do, doing what its natural instinct tells them to do has been so very fun for me this year, having a, having a first year gun dog in the woods. First time I've had an owned gun dog, trained a gun dog, and it's her first season in the woods and working cooperatively with her and sharing her with other people too, that haven't spent a lot of time in the grass woods has been one of the highlights of my hunting career, I would say. I, I didn't grow up bird hunting. Um, I grew up deer and turkey hunting. So I guess some birds, but not up in bird hunting. Different bird. I didn't grow yeah. up hunting behind a dog. Yeah. <laughs> and um, didn't, I mean, it maybe, maybe followed a lab every once in a while around some pheasants, but not a pointing dog and not in the, not in the grouse woods. So this has been a real treat and, and, um, uh, certainly a learning experience for me. And I, you know, I started hunting when I was 12. Um, you know, a Wisconsin deer hunter started when, starts when they're 12. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so this is, I have, I have so much to learn and it's been really rewarding and fun to, to be spending those experiences with other people informal and informal kind of learn to hunt type situations. So I have a question, a crop question that maybe either one of you might know the answer. What is the purpose of the crop? Like why I'm going to, I'm going to hypothesize here. Is it like, so I can get all my food and then go digest it in safety or like, why is there a holding tank? That is my understanding. Um, I, I'll give all of this a preface that I'm not the bio, I'm the generalist in the organization. So um, I go off of what I've understood (laughs) from the scientists that I work with. Um, But yeah, that's, that's the understanding is that um, they need to use as much energy as they can to get around and basically collect as much food as they can get back to a place where they feel safe and then they digest it there and they can kind of just hunker down and um, energy can be put into digesting the food instead of trying to spend all that energy at the exact same time with moving around, looking for food, collecting it and also digesting it. So, um, and grouse are often more active in certain parts of the day, say at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. And so they may be resting in, you know, if, um, you know, during like the summer and fall, it may be hotter in the middle part of the day. And so they may want to be laying low and resting a little bit more during those hot periods. Um, And so it makes sense for them to move around, get what they need during a certain period of time, and then be able to hide away maybe in, you know, um, in the shadows in a cooler area. So that's my understanding. And Kelly, I believe, is a bird biologist. <laughs> so optimal foraging theory comes yeah, to mind. Putting putting me on the spot, right, to show any level of biological biological knowledge I've retained over the years. Um, <laughs> yes, and and I um, for those who don't know, birds have you know a multi stage digestive tract. You know, like if you're familiar with 
ruminants, cows that have like a multi-stage stomach, birds, it's, it's kind of the same thing. So they have the crop, like Ashley was describing first, where all that food gets stored temporarily, and then it goes into their gizzard where it gets actually digested. Um, and so, and if you, you know, some of you might eat gizzards or um, open up gizzards too to see what's in there. And then you've noticed things like stones because birds pick up pebbles and eat the pebbles. And then the, those pebbles or small rocks help um, grind up the food that ultimately ends up in their gizzard. So it doesn't get the digestion really happening in the crop. It happens in the, in the next part of the digestive tract, which is the gizzard. So cool. Which so, is really fascinating to look at a gizzard. Um, I've had a couple folks show me how you can, I haven't done it myself yet, but um, how you can make the gizzard as a little bit of meat. Um, there's mm -hmm. kind of this leathery rough part of the gizzard, but if you peel that off, you can actually have kind of a nice little tender piece of meat um, to go with the rest of your bird. Yes. Yeah. It, we have taken advantage of that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. All caps. <laughs> yeah. There. Yeah. It's a muscle. Like you know, like most things in an organism's body, it's muscle tissue, and it's a very firm muscle. Like if you put one in your hand, you're like, wow, that's a really, like <laughs> it's a, a really interesting texture shape. And then yeah, <laughs> once you peel that outside part away, you can get like some really yeah, a nice tender little morsel. You need you need to save up a lot of birds, I think, to make it worth the effort. But or save up a lot of <laughs> gizzards and do it all at once. Um, so talking of this crop gizzard discussion has me thinking back to um, the recent grouse hunt that I did in northern Minnesota, and the two kind of I guess the two habitat types that we would look for grouse in and find them in, um, and it was two really distinct areas, right? Like it was these thick um, conifer woods that was like, I mean, you could hardly walk through them. The branches are just like skeleton fingers on your face and like swinging back at you. Um, <laughs> we, we tried to hunt in there on the first day and it was like, this is ridiculous. You know, we're not going to find a bird in here. The ground, I mean, it's more bare than the turkey woods. There's nothing down there except mosses and things like that. There's no undergrowth because there's no light hitting the forest floor. Um, and then... There's this other type, which is in the place that we were anyway, it was a lot of aspen, um, relatively thick aspen, a lot of times, you know, like varying sizes. And there's some things interspersed too, like some oaks and the occasional maple, um, but like the size of your arm. And that was where, to my understanding, that was where all the food was. That was where a lot of the high bush cranberry, even those were the trees that were growing in waterways that had you know, like tag alder and like the catkins and stuff. Um, and it was really interesting because depending on the weather, we found the grouse in one place or the other. Sure. And yeah. I'm thinking, you know, they're eating in one place and then they're going to another place for safety and like all the other things that cover provides. Um, so this, I think, could lead us into a little conversation with you, Ashley, about the importance of forest conservation and how that kind of how a crop can tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with grouse, they definitely utilize a lot of different parts of the forest, not just um, depending on the weather, but also depending on the time of year. You know, um, some of those young aspen stands that you're talking about can be really great for grouse, um, especially when they have broods in the spring um, when they're looking for more bugs because I mean we know this if you're if you're in a younger dense stand um, of forest in the spring 
there are going to be a ton of bugs around and um, grouse chicks love to get all of that protein from the bugs and so that's really important to them when they're younger um, and one of the things we see across the landscape is that um, grouse grouse are really tough birds <laughs> and they're really opportunistic um, these are this is not a very fragile species like these are birds that make it, you know, they make it year round in the winter. They don't migrate, right? So they, they tend to stick in kind of the same little area. Um, they also, you know, they'll, they'll roost in the snow. They, um, they'll eat just about any kind of vegetation that's around them. Um, and they really like, you know, they don't last for very long. <laughs> a lot of these <laughs> birds barely make it to, you know, they might make it a year or two if one is very lucky, maybe to three years, um, but they, they really, they have a tough life, um, but they thrive despite that. The challenge that we see across the landscape is that there's not enough of a mix. There aren't enough diverse forests to hold grouse in certain landscapes. So, um, you know, you were just talking about the different types of habitat that you can see and we, we know that grouse can do well even in like an oak forest, um, especially when you look at the southeastern United States. There are a lot of oak forests that hold a lot of grouse, but you have to have food there. You have to have a diversity of different age classes of the trees. And so um, a big piece of this is thinking about how do we make sure that our forests are as healthy as they possibly can be. An example of what we're looking at, what we're talking about when we talk about forest conservation is if you compare something like northern Minnesota to a state like Indiana. So northern Minnesota, especially the last couple of years, we have had so many great reports of how many grouse are out there and all of the broods that people are seeing. It's been a really great couple of years for grouse in the state and there's really no problem holding a hunting season and knowing that that population of grouse is sustainable, um, that there isn't a significant impact on that population as a result of hunting. Um, but in states like Indiana, grouse have now been designated as a state endangered species. And in Indiana, they've really had a challenge with getting certain forest conservation projects on the ground and put through. Um, and so they've ended up with a lot of these forests that are very single age or entirely old. And so you don't have a mix of species the way that you would have with um, some of those forests that we have in Northern Minnesota, which have a greater mix of different species types as well as age classes. So, you know, Indiana and Minnesota, when you look at a map, don't look terribly far apart from each other. But when you compare the different approach to forest management, that becomes really obvious how it can impact a bird like grouse that does rely on young forest for at least a portion of its life. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, in northern Minnesota, you're either a logger or married to one or... <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, that's what your dad does. So I, I think that just speaks to, um, you know, I think a lot of times in the popular vernacular around Earth Day, save the trees, it's like, oh, logging is terrible. Um, and certainly in some contexts, like deforestation in the 
rainforest, it is bad hands down. Um, but I think talking about how important, how important that disturbance is to not just grouse, but a, a wide suite of species that are struggling now because of, like you said, changes in forest management practices. Right. Yeah. And even things like, you know, prescribed burns are something that that's where I like to start the conversation with folks who are maybe newer to thinking about how disturbance plays a role in the ecosystem. Um, because prescribed burns are basically just, you know, trying to replicate the, um, the small scale, low burning fires that will come through a forest and, you know, really open up that understory to allow for new growth. Um, but if you have a fire that rips through and it's been years and years since you've done any kind of burning or a fire has gone through, you can end up with a forest that burns really, really hot. And what that does is it kills everything. And so then it's just much harder for that forest to come back. Um, and so the goal is really to find ways to work with the humans that live on the landscape the communities that surround these forests and figure out what is the appropriate way to keep a good mix of age classes and diversity in these forests, considering, you know, especially in the Eastern United States where a big portion of the ruffed grouse population is, how do you manage those forests when often people are so mixed in and there's a bigger population in proximity to those forests than, you know, if you compare like the West where there are huge swaths of almost nothing but forest. Um, so when you mix people into the equation, how do you find appropriate ways to balance everything with local economies, with the wildlife, with outdoor recreation? Um, and honestly, it's not an easy answer. <laughs> it's something we're still working at. We're still trying to understand how do you balance all these things? That, that is both the, the interesting and frustrating piece about conservation is how do you keep all of these things in balance and understand them in a way that really has the best outcome for people and for wildlife? Yeah. Kelly, is anything coming up that you want to talk about in this? I think what strikes me about what Ashley's saying, what I what I was reflecting on personally was, um, you know, the rough grouse range was, used to be so much more vast than where they exist now, right? And even in, right. you know, where right. I live now in southern Wisconsin, knowing that those birds are are pretty much gone and there's, there's really not going to be a way to get them back. We just don't have, we don't have enough space on the landscape to have that juxtaposition of all the different forest types those birds need throughout their life cycle to make a go of it and how that just really saddens me but also as a person who works in conservation like a realization of how to where do where should we then put resources right like we there there are places where we can legitimately make a difference for these species and um and there are there are potentially things we could do long term taking a long-term view about where grouse no longer exist that where they where they maybe could and again reflecting personally on all of the different upland resident birds we have lost across large swaths of the midwest you know thinking about states like indiana ohio illinois southern wisconsin where we used to have a variety of different resident upland game bird species and they are pretty much all gone 
and that it all comes down to habitat and how we have, how we as humans have, um, need, we, we, we do need space too, and we're not going to move people <laughs> to create all of these habit, all this habitat to bring some of these birds back. And that's just, that's just the reality of it, I guess. Yeah, Kelly, same situation here. I mean, I live currently in kind of like middle east Tennessee, um, but across the southeast, I mean, bobwhite quail obviously are like done for. Actually, fun uh, side fact here. When I was at my parents in Minnesota, I was driving on the golf cart with my dad and Charlie around their pond and we flushed a bobwhite quail and I saw it. It's stubby little wings. Yeah, and it's white eye little line and I was like oh my god I know what that bird was and I cannot believe it and my husband is not going to believe me he's going to think I'm full of it there's no way he's going to believe me and I went and tried to flush it again I couldn't find it I got home and he googled and the DNR there is an effort to establish or reintroduce bob whites in Minnesota but sorry that was like a unicorn moment for me um but the you know bob white quail here in the southeast and even you know rough grouse range used to be in Tennessee and pretty close to where I live and to some extent I mean there are still birds there but I would be hard to find a person that has harvested one of them in the last 10 years yeah. Yeah. And we've really got an effort in um, the Southeast right now trying to work, um, starting with a lot of public land. So working with the Forest Service on something called stewardship agreements, which basically allows us to be a catalyst to get that work done. Um, with a lot of work with federal agencies, you find that not only is there a lot of red tape, which you know a lot of folks talk about, but it's also capacity. Yeah. Um, a lot of times these folks are covering a massive amount of land and they just don't have the staff to do it all um, the way that they would want to. And so um, we're working on these stewardship agreements in different forests um, to get some work on the ground in those national forests. But then we're also working with like NRCS um, to do something called Working Lands for Wildlife um, and that effort is nationwide, but um, the way that we're working with them in the, like in the Southeast, the Northeast, the Midwest, um, is really to find ways to connect private landowners to resources. So um, a lot of these efforts alongside the conservation of um, species like grouse and American woodcock, you also have conservation efforts that are really gonna benefit a non-game species like a golden-winged warbler. And so um, some of the efforts there are very focused on a bird like the golden wing warbler. Um, but that work also benefits these other birds that are really reliant on a mix of younger forests being part of a landscape. And when you talk to private landowners, a lot of times they want to do more conservation or they would like to manage their lands more, um, but it can actually be really tough to find the right resources um, to find the time to, you know, to have the right plan in place. So it can be very complicated. And so having those kinds of programs and connections that helps um, with private landowners too, understanding that, then you start to stitch together all these pieces of different types of landscapes. And what at first seemed maybe impossible when it comes to just looking at, oh, if it's only public lands, how are we gonna do this? And you have all these different land types working together, whether it's county, state, and federal lands, whether it's private landowners and companies, um, getting everybody <laughs> into the same place and understanding 
what our goal is and what we want to achieve with these landscapes, um, you really can come up with plans that cross over, you know, those those different areas. And um, we're doing something called uh, dynamic forest restoration blocks, which is basically mapping that out at the like at the watershed level. When you look at all these different forest landscapes that are out there, what are the different avenues to working with different people, agencies, companies? Um, to have that mosaic and that fabric of a forest that really does sustain wildlife. Yeah. Wow. That's super interesting. You know, one of the, okay, before I get too far, I already forgot to do our break for (laughs) our partners. So let's take a quick break (laughs) to hear from uh, one of our partners. to take a minute during this episode to let you know that Artemis is teaming up with Proas for an amazing giveaway during the month of November. We're giving away an entire outfit, including a trial pack, Tori pants, Tori jacket, cap, and a Tintry 2.0 shirt. The goal of this giveaway is to grow the social support network that exists for sportswomen. And all you have to do to enter is film and post a super short reel of yourself talking about what you're going to do to enhance the social support that exists for sportswomen. So head on over to our Instagram or our Facebook for the specific guidance. Um, You need to follow Artemis and Proas as well as use the hashtag supporting women afield in your posts. Um, We'll link to that guidance in the show notes. So make your video today, post it and enter to win this incredible, incredible giveaway. For more than 100 years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. Now, for the next century, South Dakota is focused on expanding pheasant hunting's horizons, welcoming more sportswomen to the field, giving them a greater voice in the hunting community. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Want a shot at free gear and an even greater adventure? Enter for a chance to win DSG Outerwear Gear and the Hunt of a Lifetime with Melissa Bachman of the Sportsman Channel. Learn more at huntthegreatestsd.com forward slash DSG. And we're back. So right before the break, um, Ashley was talking about some really cool kind of high tech stuff that is in the works for forest management. Um, And I just, uh, something that struck me earlier when you were talking, Ashley, is that really wildlife management, wildlife science, as it, you know, in modern terms is only like a hundred years old. Um, it's still a really new and young field. Um, and the technology that we have at our fingertips now, as opposed to a hundred years ago, I mean, it's, it's changed exponentially. And it's been so interesting through my time, you know, in undergrad, graduate school, whatever jobs I've had to see, new stuff emerge and how it's being applied to solving some of these like really big problems that and things that are changing at such a rapid pace at least in relation to you know species uh time frames yeah and a couple things come to mind for me there one is when you said high tech it reminded me that um we're also using something called autonomous recording units on some of these uh, landscapes to basically do surveys, but do surveys in terms of the sounds that you're hearing to get an idea of the different mix of species that might be on the landscape. So um, you you do a recording and then basically have somebody analyze that to look for 
um, what species are there that you're finding on that landscape and not always having to have a human there because sometimes that can alter um, the species that are present. So um, that's one thing that's really cool, you know, uh, that, that we're using and other agencies are using now. Um, but the other thing that comes to mind is as somebody who for most of my career has dealt with more of the societal, cultural, people aspects of how we manage landscapes, um, you know, I think sometimes it's easy to be like, technology will save us, right? Like that'll help us figure our way out of it. But at the end of the day, <laughs> it really does come back to how well do we talk to each other? How well mm -hmm. do we try to understand each other and see each other's um, best sides of an argument? Um, I, I've worked with some just incredible journalists over the years, um, including, um, so um, Hal Herring with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and Nate Schweber, who um, occasionally writes for the New York Times. He just released a book this year. Um, and both of them at some point in conversations have said things like, you know, when, when they talk to somebody who has a very um, kind of what people would see as an outlandish point of view, one of the things they really try to parse out is what is the best argument or what is the, the way to understand the way that that person thinks um, in, in a broader perspective of how it could actually help everybody work together or how it could change um, our way of seeing each other as humans. So for example, um, you know, in the space I work in, it's very much a pro hunting, right? Um, culture at the rough grouse society. Um, but in the past, I wasn't always a hunter, right? So I didn't necessarily know how I felt about hunting. And there's a lot of different ways that that conversation can go um, when you interact with people in an environmental space. And so this question about like, how does hunting and conservation, how are they tied together? Um, some folks didn't grow up around hunting. Some folks don't really know what goes into hunting. I certainly didn't until I started hunting. And so um, I think that it's, it's really easy to think like, oh, we just need the right technology to get us there, or um, we just need to come up with the right perfect strategy to do this thing. But the thing I see over and over again is it's really about can we get people to the table together and get them to, to talk to each other and try to understand each other. So um, that is really the best way to, to move forward with conservation um, is to, to move forward together when possible. Spoken like a true communications and marketing expert. <laughs> I agree with you, Ashley. And I think um, Kelly and I actually have the same alma mater. Kelly, I don't know if you knew that. Do you remember from undergrad this phrase, wildlife management is people management? Of course. <laughs> Everyone, I think that's 101, <laughs> wildlife 101. Um, so yeah, Ashley, I, I, you are absolutely right. I, I, I see that as well and agree with you. 100%. Um, and thankfully, we have folks like you to help facilitate that. So I want to pivot here to, well, two things. One, Kelly, I'm going to put you on the spot again. You're currently at a pretty awesome meeting. Is there any groundbreaking science that you want to share with us relative to grouse and forest stuff? <laughs> it's funny you bring that up since we just kind of like 
went got to a point where we are saying uh, that science informs things, but doesn't tell us what we what we should do. And so I think I've spent a lot more time at this conference networking with partners and talking to people about behavior change than anything else. Right. So I, the, I've, I've, I definitely take a different approach to these meetings now where I'm, there are certainly some really great nuggets of new science information that helps fill a knowledge gap. Um, I haven't, I haven't sat in on any grouse presentations. I did sit in on a turkey presentation to try to, to, to inform some of my own <laughs> hypotheses about, about turkeys and, um, Yes, but I would, but I will go back to what Ashley was really was really telling us about that is that it ultimately comes down to choices that people make, um, and we the science helps inform that, and we can have the best science there is, but ultimately it's up to the decisions that we make and what our value sets are and what and how large proportions of the citizens of this country decide to make decisions based on their value sets. Yeah. And on the subject of gatherings and meetings, um, Ashley, I know that you recently, I actually was when I was in Minnesota too, but I was hunting, so I couldn't come. Um, you recently attended the women's forest Congress and I correct me if I'm wrong. I think this was the inaugural, the first one ever. Um, can you talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So just like anything, I think, um, you sit in front of your computer a lot, at least I do <laughs> in my work, and you deal with all these concepts that sometimes feel very intangible, um, or at least you do things and you kind of send them off into the ether and you hope that they have an impact. And so it's just really rewarding to be in person <laughs> with folks um, and to walk into this ballroom, you know, in, in Minneapolis, and the room is just filled wall to wall with all women who are all interested in keeping our forests as forests, you know, whether they work in the forest products industry, uh, forestry, forest conservation, every woman in that room is interested in keeping forests on the landscape, right? So it was just really amazing to interact with folks from all over the place. So of course, across the US, folks were um, from all over, but then, there were also folks like I met somebody from a couple people from Canada and that's one from Nepal, uh, Great Britain. Um, and so folks were coming from all over the world to connect with other women, connect with other forest enthusiasts <laughs> um, and to think about how can we work together? How can we, um, how can we really create kind of a, a big understanding amongst each other so that when we want to achieve something on the landscape with forests, that we're already in conversation and connection with each other. And so we have a better chance of saying, we still need forest products off of this landscape. How can we do that in a way that's really responsible? We need to store carbon in these forests, um, but we also wanna make sure that we don't forget about how those forests support wildlife or uh, support recreation. So how can we do this in a way that has multiple benefits? And the best chance for doing that is, again, <laughs> collaboration and talking and being connected with one another um, and at least trying to make that happen, right? So um, while I was there, I also uh, gave a presentation with a couple other women 
about storytelling in the digital age. And one of the things that we see in male-dominated industries like forestry um, is that there's just not as much representation of women as there could be, especially when you talk about things like media. So um, in my work, what I've seen is that uh, more often, and it's not always the case, but more often when I approach women in the sciences or women who are foresters um, and ask them to do media interviews, they express more hesitation on average than the men that I approach for, for those same things. Um, and some of that just has to do with us not being affirmed <laughs> a lot of times um, and given the confidence like, no, you can do this. You can totally, you know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and so a big piece of it was just that presentation was in part to say, I want more women to practice telling their stories so they do feel confident so when those opportunities come up, they have a chance to talk about their story, their passion, their perspective, because it really matters. And the more that we have that, um, and the more we have this message of wanting to talk to each other and collaborate, um, we're all going to be better off for it, and our forests are going to be better off for it. So that's that's really what I took away from it, and it was it was just such an incredible experience, and I highly recommend it if folks can make it, and hopefully Ashley, next time you can come. Oh, I would love to. I feel like in that crowd, I could meet the original forest lady, whoever took that handle <laughs> for Instagram, and I would right? love to. Oh, that's awesome. So. I want to I want to transition to some dog talk because I feel like this is a good um, space and time for that. But before we do, um, while we have you, Ashley, I want to just ask a really straightforward question that might not have a straightforward answer. Um, but what does the future of our forest look like? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think that each of us has to reflect on that every single day, right? Because Every single person listening to this podcast has an opportunity to be involved, um, whether it's local advocacy, national advocacy, um, talking to your friends about what you do. If you hunt in forests, you should be telling those stories about what you find out there, right? Um, talk to your friends about how how much you love being in the woods and um, hunting, but not as, you know, not just as a pursuit of game, but also as a conservationist. Um, I think sometimes with social media and other opportunities, it's really easy to get just focused on like, oh my gosh, look at this amazing bird that I got in the woods because we know how much work went into, um, for example, harvesting that grouse. But I think the other piece of it is really making sure to talk about the conservation, the effort, um, everything that goes into pursuing game in the woods and then also you know, maintaining the future of those forests. So, um, you know, the future of our forests is female <laughs> and also um, it's, it's every one of us um, who's out there hunting or thinking about conservation. Um, really, it's only as good as the actions that we're willing to take right now. Beautifully said. I don't feel like I can follow that with anything because that was, was a great <laughs> message. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Okay, we, we're nearing the end, but first I would love to know, Ashley, do you have a dog? I have a non-hunting dog. I have what I would call a fishing dog. She's uh, <laughs> she's very excited to be on the water, but um, 
my husband is a fisheries guy and he um so he takes her on the water with him a lot so that's that's our dog she's a mutt that looks like a baby yellow lab <laughs> oh i love that i have a fishing dog that's great i also have a dog that is he is actually a hunting dog i brought him back with me from ghana um when i was in the peace corps and that's what he not like they're not bred to do that but only the dogs that do it effectively get fed and survive sure. um so they Got hunt you. yeah they hunt like small mammals um just when people go to farm they'll just like send them into the bush if they see an animal and the dog will bring it back one time i left him with um they call them small boys in guinean culture it's just like you know a, a boy that's younger than you um and just is like generally helping you with anything and okay. it was one of my 4-h kids um so <laughs> i left um my dog jasper with him when i was traveling somewhere for like a week and when i came back his name was isaac he told me that jasper ran down a diker which is like a tiny oh wow deer looking thing and to this day i don't know if it's actually true or not he didn't have a, you know like a photo and obviously there wouldn't have been anything left to eat or see that way um but yeah maybe he did that i don't know in his life now he doesn't hunt he's terrified of loud noises but he would be an excellent squirrel dog if he could handle gunshots yeah that's uh the dog that we have is actually a feist which is a squirrel oh, yeah. hunting dog breed you know um and so she she would have been great as a squirrel dog but she she got co-opted for fishing <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late. that's super cool about um about your dog that's uh that's pretty fascinating um in terms of how that that hunting works yeah it's a it's very uh utilitarian i would say um <laughs> But Kelly, please give us a vignette on your dog. I want to hear about this. It sounds like uh, it's a pointer. Yeah, I have a poodle pointer. Um, and for those of you familiar with uh, the versatile hunting dog world, that's not a poodle pointer recent generation cross. It's its own breed. Um, a, one of those German hunting breeds um, that was developed in the 1800s. She turned a year in August, so this is her first hunting season and this is my first time in life training a hunting dog um, and doing as much hunting as I can over a dog and we've had a great first fall um, at least I'm telling myself that and I do think more and more every day that we that we have it's so easy when you in the world of social media to compare your dog to everybody else's right so like mm -hmm. um that's been probably the biggest challenge for me as a new gun dog person is like having all, putting all these expectations on her of what our first hunting season should look like and what my, what I wanted to get from this dog and having to acknowledge that dogs are individuals, just like people. And she matures at her own rate. She learns at her own rate. And, um, the, the relationship that we needed to develop to hunt cooperatively would happen in its own time. And, the more wild birds I got her on this fall, um, I really noticed how quickly she developed into um, what I think is going to be a phenomenal hunting dog. So she's put up a lot of woodcock for me um, this year and is holding point beautifully on woodcock. She's definitely still struggling with grouse to give grouse enough space um, <laughs> so that they just don't take off on her. Uh, but the her the seeing her entire mannerisms and body language change when she's working is really fun she's such a clown like she's just this really fun loving life dog um when we're not hunting and still very much a puppy like you'll be out hunting with her and she's all of a sudden she'll leap into the air at like a 
at a leaf floating down to the ground and kind of stuff like that. So like, she's just such a puppy yet and so fun and full of life. And then, but when she does get on birds, it's all business. Um, and she, yeah, she has shown a ton of potential and I just hope I can continue to bring, bring that out of her, um, bring, you know, the, bring out the great dog that I know that she's, that she has the potential to be. Yeah, man, that's so cool. I, we collectively have a dog. I mean, it's really my husband's dog. He's the one that wanted to get the dog. He's done the bulk of the training. Um, but we live together in the same house and like, he's, he's our dog. Um, but he's a flusher, he's a Springer Spaniel. And so he was our main man on this grouse and pheasant hunting trip that we did. And he moves through the world, I'm sure, very differently than your dog, Kelly. Um, it's more like, <laughs> yes. you know, just like wrecking ball <laughs> status, um, which is kind of terrifying. In some of the uh, grasswoods that we were in, I was like, oh, you're going to get impaled. Um, and he came up short on a couple a couple times where he just like, he's only, he's less than 40 pounds. So he like ran into a branch and just like bounced back <laughs> and then gear up to get back over the top of it. Um but he's like, he's five now and has been very neglected for the last almost two years um, since I was pregnant and we had our daughter. Um, and so we, we were trying to get him conditioned. My husband was putting a lot of effort into getting him conditioned for this trip and it was impossible. I mean, it's just too hot here where we live to really run him for the length of time and to the level of intensity that he needs to build up that stamina. Um, so on our, on our trip, we hunted every day in the beginning, we tried to hunt twice a day and he just couldn't hold up to it. It was just too much for him. He would be completely wiped and, um, oh, the poor little guy. He's normally just like a crazy bundle of energy. Like if you look at him, his whole body is just like quivering with joy. And it got to the point where we had him in a kennel in the back of the truck. We would like, you know, pack up from hunting, comb him out. Cause we learned our lesson with grass seeds previously with him and we would get back and open the kennel to get him out and he would just be like in the sitting up in the back corner with his head hanging asleep like dead (laughs) buddy come on it's time to eat it's time to eat and finally he would perk up enough to get food and then he would just collapse into you know dog bed for the night so he he had the time of his life he got very spoiled he now believes that he's supposed to go everywhere with us anytime we go somewhere yeah Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's a great dog. And through the course of our hunt, we were, you know, using him for grouse. And so we were flushing a lot of birds. He found what I think is a, a lot of birds, um, especially since we were novice grouse hunters. Um, and through, at one point my husband looked at me and he's like, we need a pointer. <laughs> like <laughs> these birds aren't, you know, I can't get a shot on this bird flushing this way, blah, blah, blah. We need to point her. And I was like, don't even, we're not getting a third dog. We can't, it's not happening. Um, so we're sticking with flusher for now, but. Kelly, but yeah. I'm curious because, uh, I've been thinking about a poodle pointer a lot, um, in the possibility of getting one of those dogs. So I'm just curious if you have, um, any perspective for folks who are looking to get a dog, um, you know, you know, what made you attracted to getting a poodle pointer or, um, recommendations for folks that are looking? Yeah. Well, who doesn't love a bearded dog? Uh, (laughs) people that don't love water on the floor. (laughs) I know. I know. And she definitely, she definitely leaves that everywhere. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I am, 
I feel like I'm a terrible spokesperson for the breed and like, and, and, and for, uh, what, how to go about deciding which breed you want, because of course, you know, I just was like, well, I'm getting a bearded dog, right? Like that's not, that's probably not <laughs> something you should base your decision on, but, um, I wanted, you, you definitely should think about what kind of hunting you want to do, what size dog you want. And then the general personality characteristics, I'd say of the breeds that you're interested in. And so I was interested in a poodle pointer because I wanted a versatile dog. I wanted a dog that would water retrieve and point in the uplands um, and potentially even could track deer for me. And she has, which is awesome. Um, I wanted a dog that wasn't super big um, size wise and she's 40 pounds, which is perfect for me. Um, you can get some, you know, poodle pointers that are, uh, you know, females that are 50 pushing 60 pounds if you get a really big one, but I wanted something a little bit smaller for, um, just to, for traveling and for in a, in my housing situation. And from what I had researched with poodle pointers was that they, they should, and hopefully she will sometime in her life have an off switch in the house. So she'll <laughs> to hunt really, to hunt really intensely. And, but then also to be able to chill out, like, you know, when I take her to family events and things like that. And, um, I would say to, and I haven't been around, i certainly have not been around a ton of um, pointing breeds and hunting dogs across the course of my lifetime, but she, I would say her personality compared to something like a wire hair or a short hair, German wire hair, German short hair is that she's just, um, she's a clown. She's a, she's not as stoic or intensive as those breeds I would say. <laughs> and that, that is fun for me because it's a great reminder about what I should be enjoying in this life. And um, yeah, so that, there are subtle differences like that, I'd say, across the versatile breeds, the pointing breeds. Sure. And then, like Ashley was saying, you know, if you're – so that's the pointing breeds, and then there are the flushers. And the style of hunting for flushing dogs and pointing dogs in the grasswoods is very different. And so think about what yeah. think about what you want your experience to be for sure. And I, like I said, I had never really done um, much – upland hunting besides pheasants before I got in before I got this dog and I don't know I just kind of you seem to be drawn to one or the other I guess um and I was drawn to the to the pointing breeds and then that led me to the poodle pointer but I have hunted with um Bill Kepke who actually you know his springer spaniel in the grasswoods and it's like this controlled level of chaos right like it's just (laughs) totally different totally different experience but super fun and it's in its own way so I I mean I would I guess my suggestion to people when would be first and foremost, like figure out, yeah, which, which style of hunting you want to do. And then talk to a lot of breeders, talk to people that own those breeds. Um, and I did spend some time at, uh, NABDA training days, um, the North American Russell Hunting Dog Association training days, um, when I got my dog Leo. Um, and so I got to see other breeds, um, and talk to people who have poodle pointers and, or who have other dogs and, it was a really, it's a, it's a great way to learn uh, for sure. And you don't even, you don't have to have a dog to go to those training days. So I would highly recommend if you're, you know, if you, if you're debating between breeds um, to go to those and you can assess them right in front of you. Right. Um, And talk to people who are breeding and training them oftentimes uh, when you're there. Oh, that's that's really great advice. One-stop shopping there. Yeah. Maybe not actually, you can't buy a puppy, but <laughs> I don't know, maybe they do have people <laughs> selling them there. There's definitely um, breeders that are, yeah, that will be at those, um, that will be there. And so then you can see, you know, maybe the parents of a, of a litter that you'd be interested in, or, I mean, the dog world is fairly small, right? Depending on the breed, Poodle Pointers is a pretty small world. 
So oftentimes when you hear people say where they got their dog from, you know, it was a kennel name that I recognized um, through my own research. And so uh, oftentimes you you might, depending, like I said, depending on the breed, um, you could run into, you know, half siblings of a dog that you end up owning or at least, you know, dogs from similar lines. And so, um, yeah, check that. I would, I would definitely recommend checking out something like that if you're, if you're doing research into a versatile dog. Very cool. All right. We have to wrap this up. So we're going to do our weekly closer hits and misses. What have you been aiming for and how did it go? And Kelly, would you like to start us off? Yeah, sure. Literal hits and misses. Um, (laughs) for me, I, right before I came out to Spokane, um, it was the end of Wisconsin's woodcock season and, I have been trying so hard to get a woodcock in my home county, (laughs) in the county that I live in during the season, and I missed a lot. I am just a terrible (laughs) wing shooter. I have so much practice to do this offseason. And finally, my last hunt with Leo before, um, it was like I came out on a Saturday and I hunted with her on Friday. I finally connected with a a woodcock. That was my literal literal hit. and that, yeah, it was just a culmination of a really great season. And I am so very sad to know I'm going back home to no, to no woodcock season in Wisconsin. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I always joke with people now that I finally understand how you go through so much seven shot when, when you start <laughs> chasing upland birds. Cause yeah, I did an awful lot of missing this year, but the hits are, the hits were very memorable and I'm grateful for those. Congratulations. That's awesome. That's yeah. a great story. And it's it's pretty representative. I mean, that's the case for a lot of us. <laughs> yeah, right. We're in, I'm in good company, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ashley, what about you? Uh, well, I haven't been out hunting as much as I want to. This has been kind of a busy fall for work. But um, when I was out in Montana at the Her Upland uh, grouse camp, I got to go out with my camera. So um, I got to go take photos of a number of ladies who were either on their first hunt or their first grouse hunt. And um, right after I took one of the photos, uh, one of the women was talking about how this was the first time she had ever been out hunting with all women, right, in, in the group. And she just said, it's different and both are great, but like, it's really nice to know that this is an option, that this is a thing I can do. And I just loved um, hearing the insights from the women that were there at that grouse camp and getting some photos. So um, I can certainly share some of those. They're on my Instagram account. Um, Her Upland is uh, an account that you can follow and um, learn more about how to learn to hunt and different events that they might have. Um, but I'd say, you know, the photos that I've taken this fall has really been, um, some of my favorites. Oh, that's awesome. The colors when we were up North were incredible and Kelly Woodcock season is just gearing up down here. So maybe, maybe we'll get out on this Sunday and take advantage of that or try to, I have literal misses. I mean, it's, it's bad. You guys, I didn't get a single bird (laughs) on this trip. Um, I missed, let me see if I can get the count right. I know I missed at least two grouse, maybe three. I missed a woodcock and at least one pheasant, maybe two. Um, and I've got, you know, like a hundred item long list of excuses why that happened. But the fact of the matter is Kelly, kind of like you said, I'm just not on my game right now. 
Um, I need to practice. I need to take it back to the drawing board and, and really get, I got a new gun. I need to get, spend a lot more time getting comfortable um, with oh, that yeah. gun. That can really factor into that. Totally. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I think a hit for me was um, realizing that upland hunting is the hunting to do with a baby. Um, there were still challenges, but being able to be moving with her on my back and like, I don't know, it was, that part worked out surprisingly well, I feel like. That's so, awesome. Yeah, so that was good. But uh, but yeah, Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And Kelly, thank you for being a co-host. I feel like this was a really great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, this was really fun. I hope we can do it again soon. And um, I hope you both have a great rest of your fall. Yeah, Same. Absolutely. Thank you both. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. <laughs>